We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Good morning and happy Wednesday. It is December 6th and tonight will be the fourth GOP primary debate and we're going to get into that uh, later on in the program with two special guests that will preview uh, what each of their preferred candidates as well as uh, potentially the other two may have to say. But first, I wanted to uh, circle back and do a, a sake circle back. Are we still saying that, the sake circle back? Uh, to <laughs> to a couple of cases that are very important, court cases that you need to know about. First, Attorney General Ken Paxton, who of course was acquitted during that really ridiculous impeachment out of the state of Texas is back at his uh, position and is doing such a great job. He has sued Pfizer for misrepresenting the COVID-19 vaccine efficacy and conspiring to censor public discourse. This uh, comes out of his press release that you can find on the Attorney General of Texas homepage. And this press release goes on to say that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has sued Pfizer Incorporated for unlawfully misrepresenting the effectiveness of the company's COVID-19 vaccine and attempting to censor public discussion of the product. Pfizer engaged in false, deceptive, and misleading acts and practices by making unsupported claims regarding the company's COVID-19 vaccine in violation of the Texas Deceptive Trade Practice. Practices Act. The pharmaceutical company's widespread representation that its vaccine possessed 95% efficacy against the infection was highly misleading. That metric represented a calculation of the so-called, quote, relative risk reduction, unquote, for vaccinated individuals in Pfizer's initial two-month clinical trial results. FDA publications indicate relative risk reduction is a misleading statistic that unduly influences consumer choice. Pfizer was also put on notice at the time that vaccine protection could not accurately be predicted beyond two months. Nevertheless, Pfizer fostered a misleading impression that vaccine protection was durable and withheld from the public information that undermined its claims about the duration of protection. And despite the fact that its clinical trial failed to measure whether the vaccine protects against transmission, Pfizer embarked on a campaign to intimidate the public into getting the vaccine as a necessary measure to protect their loved ones. In fact, Pfizer's product failed to live up to the company's representations. COVID-19 cases increased after widespread vaccine administration, 
and some areas saw a greater percentage of deaths from COVID-19 among the vaccinated population than the unvaccinated. When the failure of its product became apparent, Pfizer then pivoted to silencing truth tellers. The lawsuit notes, quote, how did Pfizer respond when it became apparent that its vaccine was failing and the viability of its cash cow was threatened by intimidating those spreading the truth and by conspiring to censor its critics? Pfizer labeled as, quote unquote, criminals, those who spread facts about the vaccine. It accused them of spreading misinformation and it coerced social media platforms to silent prominent truth tellers. We are pursuing justice for the people of Texas, many of whom were coerced by tyrannical vaccine mandates to take a defective product sold by lies, said Attorney General Paxton. The facts are clear, he goes on to say, Pfizer did not tell the truth about their COVID-19 vaccines, whereas the Biden administration weaponized the pandemic to force illegal public health decrees on the public and enrich pharmaceutical companies. And I will use every tool I have to protect our citizens who were misled and harmed by Pfizer's action. The lawsuit follows Attorney General Paxson's investigation into Pfizer and other vaccine manufacturers announced earlier this year. So that is the full statement and the full press release. Um, Attorney General Paxson was traveling this week, but we'll look forward to having him on the program. This is a really fascinating case that we are going to continue to follow. And and if I was on any other network, frankly, even including my podcast on Salem, which we distribute on YouTube, for example, and um, a few other platforms, I may not be able to read that entire press release. Uh, And I'm so grateful for AFR that we can talk about the news. We can actually provide the full uh, truth of that release and what it actually says. We can discuss it and we can debate it and we can discuss COVID-19 vaccines and uh, Pfizer without fear of cancellation. That's one of the great things about this radio network and why we're so grateful for all of you that support this network so we can continue to talk about the truth. Uh, One of the most disturbing things that came out of those vaccine mandates that were pushed by the Biden administration was when the FDA had not even yet fast-tracked the alleged vaccine, and I, I always use vaccine in air quotes, uh, that even before they had fast-tracked it, they were attempting to coerce and compel everyone, basically, who worked for an employee, uh, an employer with 100 employees or more that was contrary to the HHS standards uh, for a a, a uh, an experimental medication. And that was the text of the law. They blatantly ignored that. And I'm really grateful to see that there may be some semblance of accountability. Of course, the mainstream media headlines uh, this morning and over the last couple of days since this lawsuit was announced are slamming Ken Paxton, saying that he's misrepresenting. There are far-fetched claims in this lawsuit, uh, really not even wanting to get into the details or ask the basic questions about whether uh, th- there was misrepresentation in terms of, of uh, what Pfizer did and uh, conspiring, as he alleges, to censor public discourse. And of course, we know that the Biden administration now colluded with big tech through uh, Attorney General Andrew Bailey's case out of Missouri, the Missouri versus Biden case. And we'll have him back on again as well to talk about all of those updates. But um, you may think that you know it's only the weaponization of government against conservatives and we're always having to push back and we're not really getting any where, but I'm really grateful to see that it's it's not 
even so much on the federal level, it's the state attorneys general who are conservatives and who want true accountability for these giant uh, corporations for big pharma for the Biden administration. And they're filing these lawsuits that I really hope that uh, will be successful and will get to the truth and also some accountability. So we'll continue to cover that here um, on my show and I know uh, throughout AFR because this matters uh, to conservatism, this and this ultimately matters to the truth, and we'll continue to tell the truth. So the other case, and I want to get to this quickly because we're um, already uh, so far into this segment. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case of Moore versus the United States. This is the Supreme Court that's considering the quadrillion dollar question in a major tax case. And this is the question of whether whether the federal government can tax certain types of unrealized gains, which is basically wealth that's just on paper. Uh, it's property uh, like stocks or bonds that people owned, but which they haven't directly recouped the value. So they don't have direct access to the money they haven't actually received the income. And if the Supreme Court and its conservative potential uh, majority, at least the three that are conservative and then the three moderates, if there's at least a five majority vote, this would have a drastic impact on the revenue generation uh, to the federal government and the taxation of uh, not just the wealthy, but even uh, regular individuals um, who maybe are, are middle class or even lower who have uh, some of these unrealized gains. And Congress would then maybe be forced to take a look at uh, the tax code and actually find some solutions and maybe try to balance the budget, maybe curb some of that outrageous federal spending. And so I hope that uh, the Supreme Court does the right thing in terms of just looking at the plain language of the 16th Amendment that says income. Congress has the power to lay and collect income taxes. And income is a very specific word that was used in the 16th Amendment for a reason. It, ju- it doesn't just say that the federal government has power to coerce and compel any sort of wealth to be given over from individuals who rightly have a constitutionally protected right to property ownership here in this country, and they have to forfeit it to the government at whim. So this is uh, the opening argument from the attorney for the plaintiff who is arguing that the 16th Amendment needs to be textually enforced and preserved. This is cut one. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the word income is not an inkblot. Income was understood at the time of the 16th Amendment's adoption to refer to gains coming into the taxpayer, like wages, rents, and dividends. Appreciation in the value of a home, a stock investment, or other property is not and never has been taxed as income. The reason is that a gain is not income unless and until it has been realized by the taxpayer. The Court squarely held as much in Eisner v. McComer just a few years following adoption of the amendment, and the Court's decisions have held that line for a century. That precedent makes easy work of this case. It is undisputed that the petitioners realized nothing from their stock investment. They were taxed not because they had any income, but because in 2017 they happened to own shares in a corporation carrying retained earnings on its books. This is a tax on the ownership of property. It therefore must be apportioned. Dispensing with the need for realization sweeps away what the framers regarded as the essential check on Congress's power to tax property. 
The government cannot identify a single thing that Congress couldn't tax as income under its position that realization is unnecessary. Without realization, there is no limiting principle. Accepting the government's position on income would make a hash of the current law. The tax code's gateway definition of gross income exerts the full measure of Congress's taxing power under the 16th Amendment by reaching all income from whatever source derived. If the government's position in this case is right, then current law already requires taxpayers to report and pay tax on appreciation and the value of all their assets, on corporate earnings for any stocks that they own, and on any paper gains from their contracts and loans. That's not how the income tax has ever worked, going back to 1913. Again, the reason the law that doesn't work that way is the obvious one. Unrealized gains are not income. The only way to make sense of the income tax as it's existed for a century is to stick with the original meaning of the 16th Amendment. The Court should reaffirm that there is no in- income without realization. I welcome the Court's questions. So that was the full opening statement from Plaintiff's Counsel, uh, Andrew Grossman, who is a, a private attorney. And I'm going to ask our, uh, our great producer, Devin, to give me an extra minute in this, in this segment. Thanks. Uh, just so that we can also play the full opening from the Biden Solicitor General. And this is the argument from the Biden administration. This is cut to. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The MRT is firmly grounded in the 16th Amendment's text and history. The amendment allows Congress to impose taxes on incomes. That phrase had a well-established meaning drawn from numerous pre-ratification income taxes that Congress enacted before this court's decision in Pollock. Several of those taxes were like the MRT in that they taxed shareholders on undistributed corporate earnings, including the income taxes in 1864, 1865, 1867, and 1870. And this court upheld Congress's power to impose those taxes in Hubbard. The 16th Amendment's drafters, therefore, would have understood taxes on incomes to include taxes like the MRT. That's confirmed by the very first income tax Congress enacted under the 16th Amendment. That 1913 law taxed certain shareholders on their pro rata shares of undistributed corporate earnings. And the trend of pass-through taxation has continued throughout the next century, from taxes on partners to S-corporation shareholders to foreign corporation shareholders under subpart F. Against all that history, petitioners stake their case on McComer. But the court has limited McComer to taxes on particular stock dividends that are not at issue here. If the court now extended McComer's discussion to invalidate all taxes on undistributed business earnings, it would cause a sea change in the operation of the tax code and cost several trillions of dollars in lost tax revenue. Petitioners say that every other provision of the tax code could be saved under a theory of constructive realization, but they don't provide a comprehensive definition of that term or explain why it would rescue every provision except the MRT. My friend today said it's a blanket term that's defined by the circumstances where you can say that constructive realization occurred, but that's simply circular. And by conceding constructive realization, they've acknowledged Congress's power to draw reasonable lines about what counts as income and who can be taxed on it, which is exactly what Congress did in the MRT. Finally, the court doesn't actually need to resolve any fundamental questions in this case about whether the 16th Amendment requires realization. The MRT taxes income that was actually realized by the foreign corporations— And Congress permissibly attributed the tax on that realized income to U.S. shareholders, just as it has done in any number of pass-through taxes throughout our nation's history. The court could say only that and affirm. 
I welcome the court's questions. So that was the full opening from Biden's Solicitor General. And the basic contrast here is that conservatives are arguing for the actual text of the 16th Amendment to be enforced, while Biden's administration is saying, oh, the history and tradition, this is the way we've always done it. We'll lose trillions of dollars in tax revenue. Well, too bad. The, the Constitution text says otherwise. So you can listen to the full argument on the Supreme Court's webpage if you'd like to stomach two hours of that, which I did yesterday. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Finally, some good news. Because of you, Preborn has rescued over 44,000 babies this year alone. Right now, thousands of mothers are awaiting birth of their precious babies, and thousands upon thousands of babies are taking their first breath. Since its beginnings, Preborn's Networks of Clinics has rescued over 270,000 babies. That is a miracle. The overturning of Roe versus Wade only made the left more ravenous for the blood of the innocent. So now we need to be more passionate to save babies. Thanks to Preborn, we can do just that. For $28, you can empower a mother to choose life. Once she sees the precious life growing inside of her and hears her baby's heartbeat, she is twice as likely to choose life. And right now, through your match, your gift is doubled. Please give your most generous gift that will go 100% toward life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, if you are not yet tired of all of the debates that have happened tonight, you get another shot at the GOP primary. This is the fourth debate of the Republican presidential primary, and it is scheduled tonight, Wednesday, December 6th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time or 7 to 9 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where it will be held at the University of Alabama. And four candidates have met the criteria to participate in the fourth Republican debate. That is, of course, Governor Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, and Chris Christie. So uh, President Trump will not participate in the debate like he has not Uh, the past three debates. But interestingly, technically, he has not met the criteria uh, to qualify because he has refused to sign the pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. So joining me now to discuss all of this and more is our good friend Bill Mitchell, who is the CEO of Your Voice Studios and host of Your Voice America. So, Bill, I, I actually want to start with Chris Christie because a lot of people thought that, you know, this was just a, a presidential run so that he could get on the presidential stage and uh, trash former President Trump, which he actually said that, that that was one of his main objectives was to tell the truth uh, about uh, President Trump in his view. And yet we find that, you know, he is qualified, unlike a wide swath of other um, presidential candidates that have now dropped out. And I know that he's not really well liked in terms of the vast uh, conservative uh, kind of, of base, um, but he's actually done a, a fairly good job to get uh, here on the debate stage. So what's your thought about what he brings uh, to the debate? Yeah, well, you know, uh, people forget that Christie was beloved in the Republican Party. He was the, the uh, once and future king uh, for the Republican Party until he walked down the beach with Barack Obama, put his arm around him during Hurricane Sandy, I believe it was, and said, you know, this guy's done a great job. 
and this was right before the election. So, uh, you know, he kind of, kind of, you know, shot his campaign in his career in the foot there, and the Republican base never forgave him. But, you know, if you listen to Christie speak on these town halls and these meetings and so on and so forth, <clears throat> it's basically just common sense stuff. I mean, his arguments against President Trump are uh, fact-based. Uh, so I think that, that that's good. Um, I think it's really, as I've seen Christie in the debates versus I've seen him in these town halls, he seems to be very um, lucid, very direct, very strong in these town halls. But he seems to me during these debates to be somewhat subdued. I, I don't understand it because he doesn't bring that same level of intensity and communication to the debate stage. So um, I don't know if he's going to make any difference one way or the other. You know, obviously he'll go after uh, Donald Trump. Uh, but uh, as far as will he move the needle, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, and I think it's really fascinating that he's still on the debate stage and has still continued his campaign because if this was only about the uh, the hostility, for lack of a better word, between uh, him and former President Trump, then uh, Donald Trump not appearing on the debate stage would kind of diffuse that and he may no longer genuinely be interested in running. But yet here he is. And and I think he's actually done a really good job. He is a great uh, debater. He does have a good style in uh, these debates. And he's taken some shots at, you know, some of his uh, his fellow primary candidates as well, specifically Vivek Ramaswamy. And so I think that the other two um, interesting candidates that are trying to get to to second position, if you want to believe the polls, um, it, it's it, I think it's really a two man race between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Um, I do think that the the gap um, is not as wide as polls would suggest. And polls, to me, are basically a bandwagon fallacy. And the candidate is either for or against the bandwagon, depending on whether the poll is for or against him or her. And we see that so much in, in the mainstream media. Um, but what do you make of Vivek Ramaswamy, who's done a really excellent job? I mean, when he first uh, announced his presidential run, a lot of people were thinking, okay, yeah, you're not going to get past the first kind of couple of months. And yet here he is on the debate stage with uh, really a lot of support. Well, you know, you don't become a billionaire selling uh, fake pharmaceuticals to investors without being a good talker. I mean, clearly the man's a good talker. Um, but my issue with him from the start is that uh, he has never run a government. I mean, you know, usually people run for Congress and then they run for the Senate. Maybe they become governor. They get some experience actually governing, and then they go for the White House. Uh, they don't go from zero to, to 100 overnight. And the issue is that when I hear uh, Vivek speak, it's like he got out the MAGA handbook and is just basically reading us everything we want to hear from the MAGA handbook. But we have nothing based upon his actual experience to look at to say, okay, you know, I can see where he went, you know, into the trenches on that. I can see where he fought for this principle. I can see where he fought for that principle. I can see where he defeated the Democrats on this. I can see where he rallied the Republicans on this. I mean, his resume is blank. If you looked at his resume, his political resume, it's completely blank. And uh, so uh, those who admire him for his being well-spoken and saying the right things, you know, that's great. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I'm not looking to elect the, the you know, speaker in chief. I want the commander in chief who can actually run a government. And here's the thing. We put so much emphasis on these debates and on speaking and so on and so forth. But there's very little speaking that actually goes on in a presidency. Most of it is the day to day running the shop. 
And that's where Governor DeSantis really shines, because he has shown that he has the ability to run the shop like no other. And Bill Mitchell, that's that's a really excellent point, because prior to uh, President Trump, who was uh, really his own best spokesperson uh, in the administration. And, you know, there were, of course, the, um, the the difficult moments and some of those mean tweets and, you know, some of the things that he was he was criticized for. But he really was um, and, and wanted to be the person that faced the camera, faced the American public uh, most of the time during his administration. And we never saw that. And the utilization of social media media personally from a president prior to Donald Trump. And it seems like um, we have now become so accustomed to that, that that seems to be something that the Republican base now expects and wants, where historically presidents would do things uh, behind the scenes. They would they would carry out all of their official duties. Of course, they would make their addresses to the nation. They would occasionally come into the briefing room. But really, they would leave all of that up to the press secretary's office and to their spokespeople. They would actually just get the job done. And that's more what a Governor DeSantis and his administration in terms of um, his statewide office in Florida has done and I think very successfully done where he does get out there and he does do press conferences and he does other things. But he really does the business of getting things done rather than just appearing in front of the camera. So how much um, do you think, especially being someone who has uh, followed President Trump, you know, was, was a Trump supporter, now is a DeSantis supporter, um, on media yourself very prolifically, a very successful show. How much uh, do you think that that Donald Trump has really changed that expectation of media savvy like what Vivek Ramaswamy is emulating and how much is that potentially necessary for someone like a Governor DeSantis or even a Nikki Haley in order to meet that expectation? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. There's so much uh, showmanship in electing a president. But when you consider the fact that, uh, you know, most people are not interested in politics. If I went out today on the street and asked 20 people what their take is on the current presidential race, uh, 90% of them wouldn't even know who's running. So people are just not that engaged. So someone like Donald Trump, who can go out there and be a real uh, bomb thrower and can really upset the apple cart and get a lot of drama and a lot of media, can get a lot of attention. It's kind of like, a, you know, a, a burning car wreck on the side of the road. You know, it's not in the road, but everybody slows down to look at the wreck. Donald Trump is kind of like the burning car wreck of politics. And uh, he has said that in his books. He's like, listen, you know, if you want to get your point across, what you do is you go out and you say something outrageous. You do something outrageous. And then once you have everyone's attention, then you present your points. And he's very good at that. He's very good at the showmanship side of it. But I think that when we elected Donald Trump, we assumed on one point that he would be outstanding at hiring the best and firing the worst. Why did we think that? Well, because of The Apprentice. And what we forget was The Apprentice was a TV show. It was scripted. It wasn't real. And we saw that in actual practice, President Trump was very poor in his uh, hiring. I mean, he he elevated people like Fauci, elevated people like uh, Milley. He elevated people like Ray. And I mean... Everybody in the GOP thinks Ray is a disaster except for Donald Trump, who still thinks the jury is out on Ray. So, uh, you know, these, these are problems. And I think that, that so much of Trump is really the myth of Trump as opposed to the uh, reality because, of, you know, in the myth of him, he's this giant statue of Zeus. But the reality is, you know, he has feet of clay. 
And I think that uh, hopefully we will figure that out before we nominate him because I don't think there's any way, especially if he ends up being, uh, you know, having these cases go against him, I don't think there's any way that he wins the general election. So how much in your mind, uh, Bill Mitchell, has the debate last week between Governor DeSantis and Governor Gavin Newsom out of Florida uh, or uh, Gavin Newsom out of California? I I keep... I keep mixing up those two states. I don't know why, because they could not be more different. <laughs> but um, but well, Gavin yeah, Newsom exactly. out of California, Governor DeSantis out of Florida. And um, and that debate last week, um, how much will that just clear win for Governor DeSantis? I mean, he, he spoke the truth. He was direct. He was articulate. He had policy. He had vision. And, and by contrast, Gavin Newsom had only uh, lies, pivots, and, you know, this kind of sleazy smile. Um, in my opinion, and so, and I think the opinion of almost everyone who watched that debate, and even those who weren't particularly favorable to Governor DeSantis, had to admit that. How much of that boost do you think will be carried into this this next debate tonight? You know, it's really hard to say. They're trying to cover that up. I mean, President Trump was just interviewed, and he said, "Yeah, I I consider Gavin Newsom a friend. I thought he did great against you know DeSantis, which is a very strange thing." I mean, I don't know what's stranger, President Trump gladly accepting the endorsement of BLM, which is a domestic terror organization, or that he's now besties with Gavin Newsom, literally the worst Democrat governor in America. So I don't know which of those is stranger, but uh, I, I hopefully that's a benefit. Uh, so far, I mean, every every single pundit has basically come to the conclusion that that um, that uh, Governor Sanders has won every debate so far, and yet he's seen no. Uh, improvement in the polls. And, and this is one thing I think is strange about the quote, quote, surge of Nikki Haley. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, Governor DeSantis has uh, received the endorsement of uh, uh, Reynolds, uh, the governor, popular governor of Iowa. He's in, received the endorsement of Bob Vanderplatt, the leading evangelical leader in Iowa. So these are huge. And he's received no, as a matter of fact, his, his support has gone down in Iowa as a result of that. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley has been endorsed by the Koch Network, which is, I mean, literally the standard for rhinoism in America. Uh, she's been endorsed by Paul Ryan, once again, standard for rhinoism in America. She's actually got donors now on the Democrat side that are donating to her. And yet somehow, as Governor DeSantis receives the endorsement of Reynolds and Vanderplatz, and Nikki Haley receives the endorsement of the biggest rhinos on the planet, it's Nikki Haley that's surging in Iowa. Of course, I don't believe any of this. You know, I think we're being gaslit to an extreme level. So I think that this will be a good night for Governor DeSantis. I I think that he should uh, stay on message. Um, I think that he should point out the contrast with the other uh, candidates. But, you know, it's not about, at this point, making the other people look bad or having the best gotcha. But it's getting those head nodding moments where you're making your presentation and the people are sitting in their living rooms watching you and they're nodding their head. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Because let's not forget, even though Trump is at 50, 60 percent in these polls, the same polls are telling us only about half of that support is solid. Only about half of that support is committed. And Trump, as the titular incumbent going into this race, if half of his support is not solid at this point because he's a fully known candidate, those people are probably going to go for the challenger when it comes time to pull the lever. So Donald Trump is in a very precarious uh, position here, and and, and the the polls are, are really quite misleading. 
and Bill Mitchell, I, I think that uh, that you're right on that, and I would agree with uh, with that take on the polls. And it's interesting to me to see how much uh, stock is being put in the polls by. Uh, the Trump camp, uh, by and large, when, of course, in 2016, we remember how off the polls were. And even right. in um, even in 2020, I mean, you know, looking at at the polls and then yet when the polls are so favorable to Donald Trump, then they're being touted as, you know, oh, this is total gospel and nobody should even try to catch me. And yet we haven't seen one caucus happen, one vote cast. And so this is still right. a totally open race. Um, but I do think that you're wise in suggesting that for people who haven't really gotten to know solidly Governor DeSantis, and we talk about politics in depth on this show and, 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 and many others that are focused on political analysis, but for the average person um, who maybe will only know Governor DeSantis from you know a few things that he's done in Florida, mainly the contest with Disney, um, this is an opportunity not to just point out some of the things about Donald Trump. I think everybody in America pretty much knows and either likes or doesn't uh, Donald right, Trump, but knows the history. They get it. They get the record. So this is an opportunity for Governor DeSantis, um, even for Vivek Ramaswamy, to come out and say, this is my platform. This is what I want to do and actually pitch their own policy agenda, not just go after Trump. Do you think that we're going to see some contrast between what we've seen in previ- the three previous debates going after Trump a little bit, uh, but d- to advance their own agendas more, particularly Governor DeSantis. Yeah, I think that if Governor DeSantis wants to go after Trump, and you know, you got to go after your opponent. You've got to get your tough guy bona fides out there. You know, you got to have some red meat for your base. So I, I think that if Governor DeSantis goes after Trump, he should use it as a segue or a lever to get into his own policy. For instance, he could say, well, you know, uh, President Trump had an opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, build the wall and have Mexico pay for it. And that didn't work out so well, even though he had uh, majorities in the Republican House and the Senate for his first two years. If I'm president, this is how I will build the wall and this is how I will pay for it. So go ahead and, and state Trump's position, but don't end on that. Use it to pivot back to your position. That's called political judo. You use the force of your enemies attack against them. You know, the bigger the enemy, the further you throw them. That's what I believe he should do. Yeah, and I think he did that incredibly well in his debate against Gavin Newsom of California. I'll get that right this time. And yeah. uh, you know, where where he contrasted his own record in the state of Florida and how Florida has been so successful and and pointed out all of the detriments and the failures of California and then said what he did differently in Florida. And I thought that that contrast was so great where Newsom didn't have anything to say. He just he just had all of the uh, the attacks and the ridiculous one-liners against uh, Governor DeSantis, but really didn't have a defense for the management of his own state. And that was a noticeable failure. And so I think this debate is going to be really fascinating. Bill Mitchell, we're already out of time, but I so appreciate your commentary. As always, you can follow Bill Mitchell on X, and you can also watch his show on um, Your Voice America. And if you want to watch the debate tonight, it will be from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. You have several options to watch on News Nation TV, also on Sirius XM Channel 111, and it will also be live streamed on Rumble. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning to break it all down.
We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say freedom? CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And the fourth Republican presidential primary debate will air tonight, Wednesday, December 6th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. That is 7 to 9 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where it will be held at the University of Alabama. You have several options to watch it. It will be broadcast or streamed on all of the News Nation platforms, including their TV channel. Uh, There will be an audio feed available on Sirius XM channel 111 and also will be streamed live on Rumble. And you can also follow all of the breakdown and commentary tomorrow morning after the debate because I will be watching it and then we will break it down in some of uh, the great moments tomorrow morning. But I'm going to welcome in now Stefan Mihailu, who is the Deputy Communications Director for Vivek 2024. And Stefan, um, first of all, this is the fourth re- Republican debate. Are people more energized, do you think, to watch this? Or are people kind of going, you know what, this is a lot in a really short time and we're kind of going to tune out? Well, good morning, Jenna. It's always a blessing to be with you. I think people are energized about who the Republican nominee is going to be, whether it's the first debate, the fourth debate, or the 40th one. You know, this is democracy in action, and it makes America great. You know, we get to choose our leaders on the Republican side of the aisle, the Democratic side of the aisle, and all of the GOP candidates get to make their case again uh, to the American people. I think it's a good thing, and I think a lot of people in the Republican Party, conservatives, uh, are energized to hear this fourth debate. Yeah, and and all of the Republican uh, nominees have the opportunity to make their case, but one very prominent figure has not shown up for any of the debates. Uh, That is Donald Trump. He did do a town hall with Sean Hannity, that one-on-one last night, and that followed, of course, Hannity's moderation of the debate between Governors uh, Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis last week. Um, Do you think that this helps or hurts Donald Trump to not show up, defend his record, take questions, and be willing to participate in uh, this presidential primary in terms of the debate, which which are really fundamental to uh, our primary process? Well, it's fundamental to our democracy. And I think at one point in time, all of the candidates had encouraged everyone seeking the GOP nomination to participate in the debate. As far as Vivek Ramaswamy is concerned, he says all the time that 
He's not running against Donald Trump. He's not running against anyone else in the GOP field. He's running for every single American, every family, every taxpayer. I think that's an important point that Vivek makes on a regular basis, that regardless of who participates, and they all should, uh, he is going to make his case to the American people that he's a business owner, political outsider, and you can only be an outsider once. You know, in 2016, that outsider was Donald Trump, but you can only be an outsider once. Uh, and in this fourth debate, you're going to hear that from Vivek Ramaswamy, that he's the only one that can truly destroy the deep state uh, as a business owner and political outsider. And so, you know, as we look at the the landscape of the GOP candidates, I mean, from a conservative values voter perspective, um, I would submit, and this is just my opinion uh, that anyone on that stage and even including uh, Donald Trump who's not on that stage would be a hundred percent better than the current incumbent in the White House and the far leftist liberal policies that uh, make up the Biden administration in terms of genuinely protecting fundamental freedom all of the values and, and the founders vision and the Constitution for America and so when we look at the GOP landscape is it important though to contrast uh, who Vivek Ramaswamy is with, let's say, a Nikki Haley, for example, who just received, um, you know, some endorsements from uh, the Koch Foundation and some of these other more establishment Republican, and and you know, and she's not really, in my view, embracing a a genuinely conservative America First agenda, but is going after more of the establishment. Is it important to contrast? who is with uh, some of these other candidates for purposes of the primary. So it's not just anybody is better than the Democrats. You're a hundred percent correct. And right on target, Jenna, Nikki Haley's not only taking money from billionaires across the country, but democratic Biden donors who has said they are voting for Joe Biden and will support anyone in the Republican field just to take out Donald Trump. You know, Vivek Ramaswamy made the point at the last debate that Nikki Haley really is Dick Cheney in three-inch heels, and that's true. You know, she is controlled by a super PAC and now received $250,000 from a mega-Democrat donor who supports Joe Biden. And the fact that Nikki Haley has profited off of going to war, uh, she will absolutely send uh, American troops and sons and daughters to die in a foreign world to, to personally profit and put money in her pocket. And Vivek Ramaswamy is making that point very clear on the campaign trail and on the debate stage, that he is an America first conservative, that he will not lead America into World War III. And at the end of the day, every decision he's going to make is, does this put America first? Does this make our country better? And it's a stark contrast to Nikki Haley, who was basically bankrupt uh, after public service and then made $8 million and lo and behold, you know, worked for different defense contractors, things of that nature. And so that is going to be a very distinctly clear point of the debate, not just for Vake Ramasawi, but all the candidates uh, that she is incredibly left-leaning and now is beholden to a $250,000 Democratic mega donor who supports Joe Biden. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right to uh, to call out um, some of those those comments uh, that Nikki Haley 
has not only uh, said from the debate stage, but how her campaign um, is going. And, you know, her response to that that quip from the Vake at the last debate on, you know, the high heels was saying, well, high heels are, are my ammunition or something like that, which, you know, as a woman, and I think to women across the country who are watching this, that didn't really resonate. I'm thinking, how are, how are heels exactly ammunition? I didn't think that went well. And it actually reminded me, Stefan, about um, really like Carly Fiorina in the 2016 debates, when I thought Carly did an excellent job of standing up there, articulating a policy, you know, she had been the CEO of of a major corporation, successful businesswoman. And yet in the last debate that she participated in, she made it all about running as a woman. And as conservatives and values voters, I don't think we care about identity politics. And that actually contrasts us from the left, because as a values voter myself, and again, this is just my opinion, not, um, you know, AFR as a whole, anything like that. um, Just my personal opinion is I don't care if it's a Republican or I mean if it's a yeah actually even a Republican I don't care if it's a man woman I don't care about the age I don't care about any of those personal demographic characteristics whatever I care about someone who is best qualified for the job but also who has the best underlying worldview and one of the things that I have found so compelling about Vivek's campaign is his emphasis on truth and over the last uh, week or so on social media, he has uh, consistently put out about 10 different truths and consistently will point out some of the very uncomfortable things even within the Republican Party. And so in the last debate, when he was uh, commenting about Ronna Romney McDaniel and some of her failures in terms of leading the Republican Party, is that going to be an uncomfortable moment tonight when Ronna's in the room and he's back on stage? Do we anticipate him calling her out again? Well, I don't think it's going to be uncomfortable for Vivek Ramaswamy. <laughs> As you mentioned, he speaks <laughs> the truth whether people want to hear it or not. He did so at that third debate. And Jenna, what's so sad is that the mainstream media, like a CNN, you know, during an interview with Vivek, basically accused him of being sexist because he wanted Ronna to resign. Right? chairperson of the Republican National Committee with a losing record. You know, he called out uh, the NBC News uh, Meet the Press host because NBC had pushed different narratives to basically throw the election. And Vivek says, wait a minute. No, I I don't care if you have, you know, two X chromosomes. It doesn't matter. You're going to be held accountable. And those 10 truths that he mentioned, you you can see them at Vivek2024.com. He will speak the truth. And basically share what a lot of people are afraid to say in public. And Vivek Ramaswamy says all the time that the temperature or the health of a democracy is whether or not we are afraid to speak the truth, even amongst our own friends and family. And he will speak that truth no matter what. It was clear in the third debate, and you're going to see that in the fourth debate. And so, uh, Stefan Mihailo, who is uh, the Deputy Communications Director for Vivek 2024, uh, one of the other pledges that uh, Vivek has made uh, just over the last few days that has come out on social media is that Governor DeSantis has touted that uh, he has visited all 99 counties in Iowa ahead of the Iowa caucus, which we're now um, you know, getting within weeks of. And Vivek is now saying that not only will he visit all 99 counties, he is on track to do that 
twice over. So not just the full Grassley, but the full Grassley twice. Uh, so where is he at in that process? Um, how many counties has he visited? And is he going to uh, fulfill that pledge to do it twice over? Yeah, that is going to actually happen by January. Vivek Ramaswamy will have visited all 99 counties twice uh, by January of this year. And look, I'm a, a former candidate and elected official. You know, I ran as the and was successful as the Erie County Controller in Buffalo, New York. My district was actually larger than the state of Vermont and larger than most congressional districts. And every election year, I went door to door to talk to people. I think it's wonderful that all of the candidates are visiting uh, counties in Iowa. And I'm headed to New Hampshire uh, right now for a debate watch party in the Granite State. Um, but Vake Ramaswamy will have visited all 99 counties by January. And that's a good thing. You know, presidential campaigns are a lot more than just television commercials and radio commercials and social media, Uh, especially in New Hampshire and Iowa. Voters want to talk to you and see you. And I have a vague calendar. I work very closely with him. Every time I look at the calendar in Iowa, I'm flabbergasted that he'll have 10 to 12 town halls. And I'm just working on a campaign, and I'm a married guy with four kids, and I get tired just looking at his schedule. But I think it's a good thing because you have to earn every single vote. And Vivek is doing that by telling them about his America First agenda face-to-face, whether it's Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina. Yeah, and that's something that Vivek and Governor DeSantis have in common, that they have said very clearly to voters that they want to earn that vote. They don't feel entitled. Um, There isn't a coronation. It's not about um, there isn't an incumbent in this primary. Um, But again, so where where is he at in terms of how many counties he is currently visited? Yeah, I, I don't have that number, have in number in front of me. I'm actually literally driving to the state of New Hampshire, <laughs> the Granite State. But it's my understanding that he's pretty much visited or is close to every single county in Iowa and will do so twice by January. But at the end of the day, uh, that's an important point to make, that, yes, candidates are visiting every single voter. But at the end of the day, when people go into the voting booth and either pull a lever or fill in a bubble – They want to make sure that there's someone who is a true conservative, a true Republican, who's going to roll back the disastrous Joe Biden agenda of soaring inflation, of not protecting life, of not protecting the lives of the unborn, of making sure that people can afford gasoline, groceries, homes. Uh, And I think a lot of folks on the Republican side of the aisle, especially Vivek Ramaswamy, will be far better as commander in chief than the disastrous Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. that we have right now. Yeah. And last question uh, for you, Stefan Mihailu, and always really appreciate your time in the last about 30 seconds. What do you make of the polls that suggest that Donald Trump is so far ahead and uh, everyone in the GOP should just get out of the race now and coalesce uh, to Donald Trump? Three weeks before the Iowa primary in 2012, Rick Santorum was polling at low single digits. And three weeks later, he won. At the same time, Ben Carson was ahead and would have been the GOP nominee if people focused on polls. The race is going to tighten two to three weeks out. We are confident that a lot of people who have never voted before, never been polled before, are going to support the caucus for Vake Ramaswamy. But polls mean nothing at this stage of the game for any candidate. All right. Well, Stefan, thanks so much. And we'll look forward to that uh, debate tonight. And again, you can watch that on Rumble. I think a lot of young people, especially speaking about new voters and the largest voting block is millennials now and then also getting into Gen Z. So we'll uh, break it all down tomorrow for you right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.